Hello there, I'm Dee Reddy and welcome to Inside Intercom. On today's show, we're featuring our Director of Design, Jasmine Friedel. I was really excited to chat to Jasmine about her life and career for the podcast. and She didn't disappoint. It's a fascinating and frank story that she tells us about how she arrived in her current role with us here at Intercom. It seems fitting to feature her as one of the company's brightest and best leaders in the lead up to International Women's Day this Sunday, March 8th. As you'll hear, Jasmine grew up in a community where the very idea of a job in tech would have been unfathomable. But through the twists and turns of her 20s, a lot of perseverance and her innate intelligence, she arrived at Facebook initially some six years ago. You'll no doubt be surprised, as I was, to learn that her UX career only began then, given her impressive trajectory since. So let's hear more on this from Jasmine herself. But before we do, if you enjoy the show, why not subscribe now on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, over to the studio. Jasmine, thanks so much for joining us on Inside Intercom today. We're delighted to have you on the show. You're Intercom's Director of Design. But before we dive into the amazing work that you do here with us over the past year and a bit, can you give us a bit of background on yourself and how your career has unfolded? Um, Yeah, totally. And thanks for having me. I'm super excited to have this conversation so how my career unfolded, where, where shall we start? Where to start indeed, because it's such an interesting career trajectory. Let's go back to the beginning. Okay, let's do it. So I've been actually digging into sort of how I got where I am a lot lately, mostly because I've been thinking a lot about purpose and what it means to be a leader and what my impact on the world is. So when I think about how I got into design, I, I actually go back to like, the early, early days of how I grew up. So the short story, and I've shared this a few times, the short story is I grew up sort of like right dancing at poverty level um, in Northern Wisconsin. And my mom and dad were sort of hippies. I was born in the late seventies. I'll give you that. And then you can calculate my age if if that feels relevant. (laughs) Um, We'll we'll leave it to to the audience to do that. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So my parents were super, super religious. And when I started to think about, you know, back then what I saw around me and what sort of like inspires you to take the career paths that you take, you, you, as a child, like need to see a model of that. And my mom was a stay at home mom and my dad ended up having a lot of jobs over the course of my growing up. And so what I had seen was a stay at home mom. And I ended up going to my first school experience. I was homeschooled for my, I think my kindergarten year, but my first school experience was actually in a Mennonite school. And that's like a very, very conservative branch of, of sort of segregated from technology in the world, very peaceful servitude. Wow. And so then the only sort of role models that I saw for female, you know, professionals were teachers. Mm. And I didn't really know going into school what I wanted to get into. I, you know, went to a Christian school throughout my, um, you know, the Mennonite school when I was in grade school. And then for junior high and high school, I was in a very conservative Christian school. And, you know, it, any sort of like a patriarchal school is usually pretty small. And so like I had 16 kids in my graduating class, which is not a lot. It's not the typical high school experience. No, not by any means. Not by any means. It was cool because I got to be 
valedictorian. Like when you're out of 16, like it's not hard to rise to the top. You I should just tell people you were valedictorian. Yeah. Leave out the, leave out the 16 people. I want to put on like a business card, like comma, former valedictorian. <laughs> The funny thing was I was actually not the only valedictorian. My best friend and I were co-valedictorians. So that kind of like brings it down a notch. Pretty like, rough oh. on the other 13 people. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, if you weren't salutatorian or valedictorian, then like you were, I mean, you were fine, but, but you really got exposure and experience to all of these things because it wasn't limited by you know, being needing to be qualified because they basically just needed butts and seats. Yeah, but I mean, obviously you had to have a natural want to involve yourself in these things as well. Yeah, but it was also just sort of like a lot of like ability to dabble. And I've I've sort of found that interesting as I go through my career because the way I the way I ended up getting into not product design but graphic design was when I went to college, I ended up having the same sort of approach. Like I went in undeclared. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. My older brother had gone off to another university to do mechanical engineering. And so I was like, well, I guess, you know, I'm good at math. I should be a mechanical engineer too. And I ended up going into college and like, I think I had enrolled in some science courses. I had gotten through Calc 1, which like looking back, I'm like, that's hilarious. Um, got through Calc 2 and found calculus kind of hard and then went, Hmm, I think I want to like kind of dabble in something else. I want to take an art class because I enjoyed art yeah. in school. And it wasn't any sort of refined class. I think our art teacher was like my volleyball coach or something like that. So it wasn't like my artistic skills are really developing, but I had them ingrained in me from my mom and my grandma who had, you know, done crafts with us all the time. So I sort of liked getting my hands dirty. So anyways, I, you know, went, Hey, I want to try an art class. I went to my advisor and she said, it's really hard to get into these art classes. You have to enroll in a major. And I was like, cool, sign me up. And so I enrolled in graphic design, you know, coming out of science and calculus and, you know, my core classes. And I was also taking ancient Greek at the time. Like I have two years of the ancient Greek language in my background, which I also find very strange now. Like, what was I going to do with that? This decision ended up having me shift because I had to apply to a program. I had to extend my college experience a year and I had to go all in and take all art courses to qualify for the program and then go through a review. And it ended up being that, that sort of said, well, you know, within my broad generalism in like education, I made a sort of like haphazard decision to jump in and say, I'm going to do this motivated by, I want to take an art class Mm. and sort of forsake the rest, knowing that I could always, you know, come back out and do something else. And I got in and I loved it and I was good at it. And so that was sort of my entry into this world of product design. I mean, this is back in, I think I got accepted in like the the late nineties. So this was like sort of before UX professions were super prompt. Uh, But that was kind of how I got into the whole design thing. And at what point when you were doing the course, did it click with you that you really loved this, that you wanted to make a career out of it? So even through all of my undergrad, I really didn't have a strong perspective on, you know, this is a career. I thought I actually, I was um, engaged to somebody back in undergrad and I thought actually that my job was going to be a stay at home mom. Like I wanted to get a job, work for a couple of years, have babies and like be a mom and, you know, let him work. And that, and again, that was what was modeled for me. That was sort of what I was set up well to do. That was the expectation that was given to me in the world that I was in. And so I didn't even process, even in my like early twenties, 
that I could have something else that I could have influence or impact on people in the world in another way. It's so interesting. You're almost like the Dolly Parton of tech where you were brought up in this Ooh. kind of, yeah, you can take that, take in that. this kind of um, poor but traditional background. And you you probably had molded your world in a certain way. And then at some point you just turned your back on it and have this completely different, rich life and existence. So let's go, let's go, like jump forward a little bit to your grad school experience. You only actually did a digital thesis and this digital thesis was what opened up so many doors for you later on. But you only did a digital thesis because it was too expensive to print stuff for your graphic design course. Is that right? Yes, it is. Um, So I did this grad program at the Academy of Art University in San Francisco. I had moved out here. I was working in management, hadn't worked in design, wanted to refresh on design when I saw my job not going anywhere. And I was in my late 20s at this point. And yeah, I was in a graphic design program. It was a print program. We were constantly buying like expensive paper and inks. I had my own like printer that printed like something like 42 inches wide paper and you could put a roll on it like in my tiny San Francisco apartment, which is crazy. And we'd bind books and it would cost like hundreds to thousands of dollars to bind books. So I'd try and do them myself. I didn't have a lot of money. I was working full-time and doing grad school full-time and the reason I was working full-time was because rent in San Francisco is super expensive and I needed to be able to pay that. Sure. So the money I was bringing in wasn't even covering my rent and I was needing to take out loans for the rest. So I was, I was really conscious of how far I was putting myself in debt. And the program was supposed to be, was quoted to me at two and a half years and it ended up being four years. So it's like an, an extra like 1.5 years of cost, Gosh. which I wasn't looking forward to. And so towards the end of it, I was just sort of like, I was broken. I was broken in so many Mm. ways that I had to think really strategically about how I could get through this without spending the literally thousands of dollars that I would need to spend to, you know, have books bound. And you would have these students in the program who would go to their thesis reviews and they would, you know, have done a theme for their thesis and they would have all this packaging and like, you know, four books and posters that were, you know, twice the size of you. It just all this stuff that just costs so much money. And many of them were supported by their parents and, you know, no big deal. Good for them. Like they got to have that experience. Mine was more like, I just need to do this on a budget. So when I was looking at my thesis project, I was looking at how to help millennials because the millennials were a big thing at the time, um, how to help millennials manage their spending. Um, it was something I was personally going through and actually kind of funnily enough played very much into the first, the first real product design job I had, which was working on payments at Facebook. So it was a space that I was really interested in. And I was like, I can do an app. Like I can design an app. An app does not require printing. It does not require any sort of book or poster. Mm. And so I sort of figured out how to do UX design without any resources and without any guidance. So that, that informed and led to your UX experience. As you mentioned, you worked for Facebook for four years. Let's talk about your time there because you were involved in some really fascinating projects. Uh, You mentioned payments in Messenger. I know you also worked on Safety Check and some at public schools. What sticks out for you as, as a really, really exciting project to have been involved in? Yeah, I think, you know, the thing I learned about myself at Facebook was that I could get excited about just about anything. 
um, I could, I could find the meaning behind it. And so when you sort of look at like payments at Facebook, that's sort of, it's like financial and it's dry and it's not the most, like, it's not the thing that people go, I want to work at Facebook and I want to work on that. Like they're, they, they usually want to work on messenger or something like really sort of consumer facing and forward and edgy. And I found that really interesting because we were solving a problem and the problem isn't as evident to us who are in the first world. It's more evident to those who are in the third world in that we were enabling people who had small independent businesses in places like, you know, Jakarta or, you know, you know, Delhi or places like that to be able to sustain their business through Facebook, through advertising and selling their goods. And so I found that really fascinating when normally to me, I'd be like, oh, but as far as like looking back and saying like, what was the special moment that I had at Facebook? Um, it definitely was the safety check project. And that was, you know, that's, it's also still up and running. That's the one where, you know, if your friends or family who are on Facebook are in an area that there is a natural disaster or some sort of crisis, you can mark yourself safe and then alert your friends and family that you're okay. And that allows people, it gives, it gives peace to people who are connected to you in some really dire situations. And it's such a fascinating one. One that I'd argue is, is, is one that probably needs no introduction. Cause I would say it's, it's mm. one of the more iconic features in Facebook. How did that spark of inspiration come to you for that? This is a project that came through in a hackathon. This was a an engineer, um, his name is Peter Cottle, who had noticed during the Boston Marathon bombings that people were using Facebook to be able to tell each other that they were safe. Sure. And so he went through a hackathon and designed a megaphone, which is basically just a banner or built a megaphone. It was just a banner at the top of the page that says, you know, oh, there's this in your area, I'm safe. And so he had been working with, he was on a different team, but he had been working with my, one of my PMs that I was working with, who was the payments growth PM. I was also, I was working on like six different payments teams at the time. Cause I was for a while, the first and only designer on payments, but she came to, you know, with this megaphone, um, and came to me and said, what do you think about this? And I was like, holy crap, um, we need, we need to work on this. You know, this is, this is not just like a banner that you check. This is an experience. This is something that people are going through. This is very emotionally and, and anxiety ridden. Like we really have to think through the experience. And so I was like, I want to do this. And so, well, first she asked me if I wanted to do it. And I think I was like, I don't have time for this. And I was like, no, I have to do this. It was like a, a heart. I'm better at prioritizing now. <laughs> so I, we jumped on and I was working with a handful of other designers. I recruited a few other designers to work on it. And there was sort of like a creative director type person who was working from our New York office that was sort of like doing design, but hadn't done this kind of design before. So I ended up leading the design of that project almost through to launch. And it was, you know, to, to date, like I, I've worked in education and I will say that's some pretty meaningful work. The challenge with education is you don't see results immediately. You know, you, you, you build something wonderful on a platform and it takes years for, for you to see the results of students. Like did, did the platform or the learning style that we were, that we helped enable, did that affect people's mm-hmm. lives? Well, you don't know until they like get through high school or through college. Of course. And so there's like an eight year span on on, you know, working with high school students to see if your work is successful. Safety check, on the other hand, you know, we saw that fairly immediately, the effect of it, and it was outstandingly positive, especially for all of the, you know, the stuff that Facebook has gone through lately. 
And I think that was the thing that was really special was that we were able to actually like look at natural behaviors on Facebook and create a lot of good for the world. And I do think it has a good impact on the world because, you know, when it gets engaged and when there is something that happens and, you know, for I'd give the example of the Bataclan incident in France. That was the first time I became aware of it. And I realized, oh, gosh, I actually know Mm -hmm. 15 to 20 people that are in Paris or live in Paris. Whereas if I had heard that on the news, I don't know that it would have resonated as much with me how close that was to my life. And I think that's a really important thing for people to be able to connect with world events like that yeah, and understand how far reaching they are. Yeah. And I, at the time, Facebook has since changed its mission, but at the time, you know, it was all about making the world more open and connected. Mm -hmm. And what you're saying was so in line with our, with our mission. It's the world, the world with technology has gotten so much smaller. Like we have access to things and people that we didn't, you know, 20 years ago and using that access for good and making sure that it's not just about, you know, connecting with anyone. It's about connecting with people in meaningful moments. I think that's really powerful. So let's chat a bit more about that decision-making time when you decided to join us. You've said before that it was a quick but thoughtful decision. So what was it about Intercom that made that, you know, made you so able to make that decision quickly? First of all, it was funny. Like I went out and found Intercom. Intercom didn't find me. When I decided it was time for me to move on from Udacity, I knew that I I knew that I had some space to do that. And so I, I could be really intentional about what I wanted and what I didn't want. And so I, I had gone and looked at the, I think I was looking on like, I don't know, wherever you find jobs these days, Glassdoor maybe. And I saw the role and the way it was written, I was like, that's me. Like you need me. And I had done the same thing for Udacity. And I was like, you know, so somebody needs to come in and, you know, lead the team in SF and build out a team and like write about design and product. And I was like, oh, this is all the stuff that I do. And so Emmett, who's the uh, senior director of design, who covers the Dublin and London teams, had actually reached out to my husband, who's also a product designer, about what the principal design role we had in San Francisco. And so I happened to have Emmett's contact information from my husband. So I didn't even apply for the job. <laughs> I had my husband connect me with Emmett and then they just happened to be like, I had a conversation with Paul Adams, who's my boss, the um, SVP of product. And they just happened to be, I think coming into both of them are in Dublin and they happened to be coming in for like a bunch of interviews for this role. And so they just said, come on down, like come do an interview. And I, I don't think I was quite ready. I think I was still like you know, I getting a portfolio together and thinking about what I wanted and really wanting to go wide in my exploration. Well, your current circumstances would suggest otherwise. <laughs> yeah. Well, it worked. And that, this is what I think is so funny. Like there wasn't a lot of preparation and I know there were a lot of other fantastic candidates in the pool too. I just, it was, we, we deeply connected. Like mm-hmm. I can't describe how that room felt, but I felt like, I felt like I was understood I felt like we were talking about the right things. Um, and I felt like, I felt like I was having fun and interviews can go like from maybe not from my experience, but from hosting them, like they can go a lot of different ways. And it wasn't just like good interview etiquette that I was using or they were using. It was, it was as something better than that. And it was, it was special. And so 
I walked away and I, I was exhausted. It was like some, you know, long, incredibly long interview. Sure. And I walked away, I was heading to wine country with some girlfriends that night. And I called my husband on the drive over and said, Hey, like, <laughs> this is something special. And we talked strategy and we talked through what would be right for me and what we would be right for us. And I had had another interview that was coming up that I was also really excited about. And I, I, I think I got an email from Paul, you know, that was a Friday on a Tuesday that was like, this is it. <laughs> we, we could build some really great things together. And the sentiment that he gave me in his email was exactly what I was feeling. So I think like, I hate to say that it's fit because it's not like, Cultural fit is something that I think we often use to say, like, in the past, we've let bros hire bros. Mm. Um, and it isn't very inclusive of, you know, bringing in diverse backgrounds, diverse perspectives. But I think what what happened was there was fit there. But I also had developed, exa- well, maybe not exactly, like I obviously have a lot to learn. Um, but I had developed a lot of the precise skills that this organization and this team needed. And, and like, boy, oh boy, have we seen those tested this sure. past year, but it was the right, it was the right blend of qualifications plus the right blend of people plus just something, something magical. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript. It's a new series of candid conversations with intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode one is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but for every single tech company, this is an adapt or die moment. It's inevitable that all businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise, old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service. And it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right? And see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's all to come on Offscript. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. So let's talk about your team here at Intercom then. Yeah. Uh, how have you gone about building and structuring it? Um, yeah, that's been a year's worth of mm. work. So when I came in, the you know one of the job requirements was to build up the team. And I had a, a fairly small team. Um, I started off with four folks who were there and, and I think two open headcount, which to me was something that I was ready to take on. I had had a team of 20 before that, and I was managing all of the designers and design systems, um, having dotted lines to brand, also managing design program management and research. So I had a pretty big scope. And this felt really tight and felt really manageable. And the the short story is that 
every single one of my teammates left and it it wasn't because of me. (laughs) I come in and they're like, see ya. But each of them had like very specific individual reasons that they needed or wanted to go when it was a contractor and didn't want to go full time. You know, one wanted to move back to San Diego and, and, you know, at this point we don't offer remote work. And so like, as we sort of went through those career conversations, as one does when they join a team and say like, Hey, I'm here, I'm invested in you. Let's get you where you want to go. Where do you want to go? And that where ends up being not at intercom. You know, my, my goal as a people leader is always to put people before a product because I believe firmly that the people is how you get the great product. And so in supporting each one of them through their transitions, I just had to like, I had to let them all go. Um, and, and go sort of spread your wings and, and, and go where you're going to be great. And so that left me not all at the same time, but la- mm. that left me o- over time having to hire up an entirely new team. And so that's what I've been doing this past year is getting the right people in. And the, the great news is I have everybody I needed. It was definitely hard because I had to, I had to refashion all of my priorities to do this. And I had to do things like, you know, rewrite an interviewing process that I felt was more open to bringing the right kind of people in. I had to reshape our mini organization and determine what roles we needed. And that, you know, something that I did was introduce the idea of a manager for our team so that I could play the director role and he could play the manager role. And then a lot of recruiting and a lot of interviewing. And then since my team was new, the first person I ended up bringing in was actually somebody I had worked with before. I didn't steal her from Chan Zuckerberg. She had to, she had quit. And then we had lunch and we talked and she ended up deciding to go through the process and was my first hire. And she of course then had to start interviewing her new teammates. And so within two weeks she was interviewing with me and it was a blessing because we had done interviewing together before, mm-hmm. but we have now built up the team. And because of it, as a byproduct, we actually have ha- we have better interviewing processes that we've scaled to our global design team. We've done a lot of things on the recruiting side that have served very useful just for building up a pipeline when we open new roles. So for example, we opened another role this year, just in January for another product designer. And we filled it in 22 days, which is some kind of wow. record because of all the work we, I, I, and we had done to invest in the community and bring folks in and get them familiar with intercom. So now I have a team that like, when I look at, when I step back and look at like where I was at, when it was like, and oh shit, like you have to build your whole team. Like, cool. Like the, the, the anxiety and the stress that that caused me, it was enormous, but there was also a silver lining in that I got to actually like really intentionally look at what I wanted the team in SF for product design to be. And I have that team now. You don't always get that. Sometimes you have to like, it's one in one out, Mm. but here, like it was from scratch and I have exceptional designers. Um, I think really some of, some of the best that I've seen, I have designers that complement each other. And when we think of shape of team, like I never want to bring in too many people at the same level or with the same skill set. We want to create spaces and opportunities for them to grow their competencies and to have experiences where they can mentor each other. And so I'm super pleased with not only like that they're good designers and that they perform really well, but that they, they work well together and they get along and they support each other. And it's, it's something, again, that feels pretty special and magical. And one thing that you've been really strong on throughout your career, and I suppose it's re- reflected in your recruitment process, is diversity and inclusion. Why is this so important to you? 
Why is it so important to me? Um, it has to be. Mm-hmm. Good <laughs> There's, I mean, yeah, it's, it's funny. Cause like, I, I don't think about, I do now, but I never thought about myself as a feminist. So like it comes from, again, like back to that religious background, like yeah. women are secondary, like men are leaders of the family, like women support men. There's, you know, lines in marriage vows that say they must obey their husbands. And that gets like, that can be either interpreted as a little bit antiquated or like just how it is. And so I never saw yeah, my we ditched role. that line a good few years ago over here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there's, there's some churches that's still like, that's still subscribed to it. And I'm like, whether you say it or not, like it makes me uncomfortable, but it didn't, you know, 15 years ago, I'd be like, cool. Like I understand what that means. I understand what model this fits under. But I think the thing that I started to notice without like, without saying I was a feminist, because that word would make me really, really uncomfortable, probably because of some of the religious things or that, you know, I wasn't out burning bras and stuff like that. Because I noticed that even in my management job where I was for six years, like I was always the most excited where I, when I could support females to understand business, I was always the most excited when I could promote them to management roles. Um, I was excited myself when I started to move forward in my career. And so there was always some sort of like, I think I had some underlying purpose of helping women succeed because I was starting to discover that I could too. I don't think I had words around it or really had concrete thoughts about it, but I could see that now. And so when I did my, um, my thesis project, when I was exploring, Hey, what's the topic that I want to explore? One of the things I looked at was this idea of equality. Mm-hmm. And I had written this you know, just for me book as one of my projects to explore the topic and called it from skirt, from skirts to suits. I love that title. I, I liked it too. It, it, it was about this like sort of like progression from like early feminism and getting the right to vote to like where we're at now or then, which was, you know, God, I don't even want to tell, I don't even want to think about the number right now, but you know, where we're at now where it's like, here I am trying to get ahead in business and just constantly see that role given to somebody who goes out for beers with his boss. And so of course they're buds. And that was, you know, that was the culture of the job I was coming from. But like, let's be real, that kind of is the culture that we're living in. But there is a push more nowadays, rather than forcing women to conform to the suit, to actually make space for the skirts in the workplace. For Like that's yeah. a messy, messy analogy, but you get what I yeah. mean, that to yeah. embrace femininity yeah. in the workplace yeah. more than assuming that it should be something that weighs you down. Yeah. Yeah. Like we have to fit a for, for a while and still in many places you had to fit a certain mold, even if you were a female. I mean, and I did that. I wore pantsuits to work for six years and now it's like, I think we're at a better place where we say, what about authenticity? What does it mean to be able to bring your authentic self to work? What does it mean to be an authentic leader? And, and that, I think we've had to go through some like really terrible things. Like I think of me too, as a movement that we really had to have some deep and dirty discussions to be able to get here. I don't know that we're in a good place, but I think we're making progress. And when I, when I look at how I lead, like I am probably a far too vulnerable, far too transparent leader at times. I'm rough and I'm rugged and I'm raw around the edges. I say the wrong thing all the time, but it's under the purpose of, or, or the intent of authenticity because I firmly believe that if we don't expose like some of the uncomfortable edges of ourselves, we don't give space for other people to feel comfortable with those edges. And therefore like 
be honest about them or expose them themselves. And so it's one of the reasons I, I, when I talk about my past, I'm like, let's just get into it. Mm. Like there's nothing that I have to hide. There are things that might be embarrassing if it's not going to hurt me and hopefully not obviously hurt other people, then I'm open to, I'm always down to talk about just about anything because I think, I think we can do better with our authenticity and that allowing people to be themselves um, is just one of, of a lot of other things that we need to do to enable more diversity and more inclusion. Which is a dream from my perspective, to be perfectly <laughs> honest with you. But it is, it's a really timely time to be having this discussion because we're releasing this episode the week of International Women's Day. But more from a design perspective, Jasmine, I'm, I'm really curious to know what you think the importance or the impact of having you know, more diversity in the groups of people that are actually designing because people very often design from their own perspective. Yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, when I when I came into Facebook, I remember it was when we were launching Facebook Home, which was basically, the, I think the HTC One was the phone that it came on and maybe some other Android OSs, but it basically had Facebook was your front, it was your home screen. And I remember looking at the team that was launching that, the design team. And it was three blonde white male designers. (laughs) And at that point I was like, that's cool. They're awesome. Like I didn't really think about it, but now I'm like, where was, where were the senior like principal level female designers? Like they just didn't exist. And it's not to say that that had anything to do with the success of the project. I think that when we think about diversity, there's so many different kinds of diversity. Some of it is like, we obviously want to bring in people from um, dif- different ethnic backgrounds, um, different genders, and be able to get experience through that. The thing I worry about when we talk a lot about that is that we actually are just like chasing numbers rather than chasing outcomes. And we're, we're looking at a place where we want to have like true equality through equity. And we need equity means bringing people up so that we have a level playing field. And so when we talk about recruiting and hiring, we often talk about numbers, but I fear that in, especially like the tech industry, we are just like trying to pull people of color from, from like comfortable places to reach those numbers. And really what we need to do is like groom and enable people who wouldn't normally have opportunity to have opportunity and work towards that equality through equity. So I, that being said, like, I, I think when I look at design, it's, it's about having like exactly what you said, different perspectives. And that could be through different backgrounds, or it just could be fruit from different, like experience backgrounds, like how I grew up, for example. Exactly. Is, or, is or even your experience of not being able to afford printing when you were in college. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think like, I think we could spin that in a way where, you know, every white male would be, well, could say, well, I have this, you know, I, nobody went through this <laughs> and we want to like, we want to use that to still diversify our perspective. But there's places when I look at that, where I think we're doing great. Like I look at the London design team at Intercom and they're from, I, I, I don't know. I think there's like six or seven designers there. And I think they're from like six or seven different countries. Wow. So that brings in from all over the world, that brings in different perspective and, you know, when I look at my team, like we're 50% women, like that brings in different perspective. Like I've got two designers that are from China. And so they, they ended up having like big experiences in their lives in different parts of the world. Right. But there's also like things that we need to consider. And I, I loved working at CZI because of this, when we think of like 
you know, we can think of different sexual orientation. That's one that we obviously don't want to expose in the interviewing process. Mm -hmm. If, if, if the candidate doesn't wish to, cause that can go wrong in, in places that aren't looking for diversity and inclusion. But another thing that we talked about at CZI was like, you know, there was a lot of like, you know, liberal Democrats, um, working at CZI because we're California, uh, because we're pretty progressive in how we think about education and healthcare and things like that. And so they wanted to hire Republicans. Like, it seems strange, but like, we actually have to have that balance in order to have that debate. And so that when we, when we have that diversity of experience and diversity of perspective and a balanced conversation, like we can't just bring people in and be like, oh, you come from here and now do this the way that I want you to do it. We actually have to actually encourage dialogue and encourage perspective to inform the work that we do in order to have better solutions. And of course, like the best examples of this are always from Facebook where we were designing for like billions of people and you'd get a designer who had an idea and they're like, I want it this way. And this very egocentric, um, you know, I believe that we should do this because I feel this. And you're like, well, that's cool. But like, have you checked with, you know, our, our millions of users in India, you know, how do they feel? Mm. Um, what do they need? And so user research became a really important part of our product organization at Facebook while I was there. It went from like a handful of researchers to I think there's like hundreds there now wow. because we needed we needed support in understanding different perspectives. And the reality is like even the most diverse design team can't do it alone. We still need to use data and research to inform our opinions. But that's one that's advice I give a lot is like anytime you hear yourself saying I say, OK, cool. Now what? What about other people? That's really good advice because otherwise you're just designing in an echo chamber or yeah. drawing on a on a mirror for want of better analogy. Yeah. Before we finish up, Jasmine, we'd love to know, is there anyone, and it could be a business leader or a design leader or anyone really, who you aspire to or who inspires you in the work that you do? Yeah. Um, yes, I'm like... I'm thinking of this question because it's, it's, I sort of answer it in different ways based mm. on who I'm, who I'm like, who I'm motivated by at the moment. When I look at who I've been able to work for, I am so lucky to have the caliber of leaders that I have. And Paul, my boss right now, like, I think he's phenomenal and one of the best people I've worked for. When I look at who's pushed me the furthest in my career, I actually have two female leaders that I feel so lucky to have worked for. I think at Facebook, I had three female managers and three males. Like I also understand that this isn't normal. Sure. But I worked for, um, Maria Judice, who is also our CEO at hot studio and came over to Facebook when we were acquired. She was a direct manager of mine. And I also worked for Margaret Stewart. And when I look at like, when I credit who, who has helped me get to where I am and who has helped me really learn about myself and become the authentic leader that I that I am right now and also understand that I have a long way to go. Um, it's those two women. And it's because Maria, first of all, is the most authentic person that I know. Like she's weird and she's awesome because she's so true to herself and she's vulnerable and she's driven. And, um, she actually wrote a book called the rise of the DEO when she was doing her business was, which is about the design executive officer. Okay. And I've been so close to her. And so she's become a friend and a mentor over time as well as a leader. And I just like, I want to embrace that authenticity. And then when I look at Margaret Stewart, who's a VP of design at Facebook, she's working on some really tough stuff at Facebook right now. 
And she is there because she knows she needs to be there because she cares deeply about the world and she cares deeply about the company doing good in the world. And she is not only like a wonderful, lovely human, she's also just like a committed motherfucker. (laughs) And when I look at like that tenacity and that drive that she has while still, while still like being a funny and warm and lovely human, like I have so much to learn from that because tenacity, like when we go back to my purpose, like tenacity is not necessarily something I had. Like I sort of had this like go with the flow kind of like this world doesn't matter. And so I've had to develop that over time to be fierce. Like she is fierce. And I continually look back to those women when I want to look at a role model for who I want to be. So I think to, I mean, today especially is a great day to celebrate them because they are the people that are blazing the path for folks like me. And I hope I can do that for others who follow me as well. Well, I think you certainly, certainly are. So before we let you go, Jasmine, where can people keep up with your work? Um, let's see, probably Twitter. Mm-hmm. I'm jazzy33ca for California. That's, I, I'm, I go on and off, but that's where you can find me. Hopefully on the intercom blog soon. I intend to do some writing this year. Well, we'll be doing uh, a blog I'll post. Check that out too. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be doing a blog post about this interview. Yeah. So you'll feature on that. Awesome. Um, and you have your own podcast as well. That's true. Thank you for reminding me. No problem. Um, yeah. So <laughs> me and my husband have this podcast called New Layer. You can find it where any podcasts are found. Um, we're hosted on Anchor FM. And we really just sort of have a a, a very casual, cool discussion, kind of like we've had D. And we talk about a lot of stuff that early designers, early product designers in their career um, struggle with from anything like, you know, how do I interview? How do I do a whiteboard exercise to what's it like to collaborate or how do you work with engineering? And so we've got a year's worth of of work up there and we will continue to do that weekly until we need a break. Fantastic. Well, we will certainly link to it in the blog. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jasmine. It's been a real pleasure. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Jasmine. We'll be back next week with another episode of Inside Intercom, where our Senior Director of Product Marketing, Ali Bakes, will be chatting to customer service expert, Shep Hyken. We hope you'll join us. And as always, if you enjoy the show, please consider leaving us a review. It always helps to spread the word. 